So uh, this week and next week, what I'm doing is I've been kind of asked. So normally how I um, arrive at topics is I, I really wrestle, wrestle, pray, wrestle, pray, pray some more, wrestle some more, and really try and figure out what can I authentically own or, or feel or, or teach um, as, as kind of the, the word that's um, relevant and fresh for where we're at. I mean, it's, it's a real kind of like... Um, life is tough, life is hard, and I always want to kind of find what's that thing that we need to, to hear to educate us, to answer some questions, to feel like um, God loves us, to, to be able to actually experience that. So that's kind of how I typically come at it. Um, this two weeks is different. I've been ordered. Um, so we have uh, elders in Antioch, and we also have a lead team chaired by Kristen uh, Reynolds, uh, Rick Gerhardt's the chair of the elder board. Kristen Reynolds chairs the lead team uh, that has Jack Kuniff and Holly Pfeiffer on it, Kip and myself, and it's kind of a growing team. There's two teams that kind of split up um, the shepherding and theological side of the church as well as the, the finance, the human resources, the business and strategy side of it. And they've both asked me to do a series on, on finance and stewardship. And so... Um, so that's, that's uh, where I'm at today. I'm under orders. And so since I'm under orders, I'm going to do it. And I'm actually going to try and do it to the best of my ability um, so that I don't have to do it again. Um, so I'm going to try and, uh, try and, I'm really going to try and give it my all. And if you know, if you know me, it's, there's, there's certain aspects of this that aren't, aren't my thing. Um, so I ask just that you pray for me. Uh, that you pray for me. So let's go ahead and uh, commit this morning to the Lord. Father, everything is spiritual. Our relationships are spiritual. The things in our heart are spiritual. The events happening around us are, are spiritual things. They're significant. Somehow we miss the significance, we miss the spiritual quality of things because it's so routine or, or becomes so mundane. And I pray that you would just stop us now, wherever we're at, that we'd be able to just sit, to sink deep into the realization that you are real, that these things we believe are true, and that you mean or desire to converse with us this morning. As hard as it is, we want to offer up our hearts, want to offer up our minds, and we want you to lead us forward even though our faith is weak, even though that we're scared often of the blessings that you promise are waiting for us or the faithfulness that will catch us, we're still scared. So help us this morning to hear clearly to know the tenderness uh, that you have as a father for children, to know your goodness and your faithfulness, to believe what's true, that if we seek you, we will find you. If we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. We want that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason I don't like talking about money is... Um, is that I happen to be one of that subset of people that 
literally get sick to my stomach over uh, religious abuse or religious hypocrisy. I just have a button that way. Um, I, I don't just shrug my shoulders at those things. Those things really, really, really grieve me. And I mean, when I see a, a televangelist or, or some of the stuff that goes on that way, like I, I just want to do like that Old Testament phrase where you just rip your garments in two. My kids would be embarrassed. Um, but that's, the, that's the, um, the raw emotion I have. I remember watching TBN. I, what, you know how sometimes you can get addicted to the things you hate? I used to watch TBN for about four or five months um, before we planted Antioch just to get angry at what I was seeing. And it, the more I got angry, the more it fueled the addiction, you know. And I remember seeing people asking for money because they, they needed a Learjet upgrade and, and literally kind of trying to manipulate people. And you can just imagine who the target audience is they're manipulating. And it's, if you give this amount of money, we'll, we'll etch your name into the prayer room so that as I'm saying my prayers to God, like your name is on a wood-paneled wall. Um, or if you really give a lot of money, um, you know, we'll etch it into the doorway. So, you know, every time I touch the doorway as I'm coming and going, like you'll be blessed, so to speak. I mean, I, those things just make me angry. So I used to talk angrily about those when Antioch was very young, and then I had somebody come up and was offended because they actually, as a family, watched TVN. And I, at first I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then after a year, I was like, what the heck is, anyways. Um, but so I'm one of that subset of, of people that really gets bothered, okay? So that means I want to avoid it because it, I don't, I don't want to be ever lumped into that circle. Now here's the problem. The problem with that is that there are some things that should always be avoided because they're just evil. Salem witch trials, uh, 1692, 1693, um, hunting witches and listening to the testimonies of 12-year-old of girls uh, as to who was a witch or not, you know, um, should never be repeated. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing in that redeemable it, it should just be forever gone, that abuse of power, that abuse of religion, that abuse of everything else. It should just be cut out, thrown away. Other things, though, however, are like when you have tumors on or problems with a vital organ, an organ that you need uh, in order to live. And so you're not going to throw away the organ. You're going to address the problems that surround the organ. And money, talking about money, is one of those things. We can't get away with it because the, the hypocrisy or the abuse of money by televangelists or others is a twisting of something good, not something um, money itself or our giving to church or the finances of, of the kingdom of God that, that is bad in and of itself. It's a twisting of that good thing. It's an abuse of that good thing. And so if we never talk about what the thing was supposed to be in the beginning, what God intended for it, how it really does connect to our life, if we never sink deep into that, we can never separate out the good from the bad. Does that make sense? So my aversion to talking about it, because I don't want to get lumped in with the bad, the downside of that is that you never actually speak to or teach on something that's absolutely essential to the Christian life, to the spiritual life. And so that's why this is of value this morning. Let me just kind of try and 
undergird that. It says, um, if we were to study it and kind of look at it, half of Jesus' parables in the New Testament deal with money or stewardship. Half of them. In addition, one in every seven verses in the New Testament deals with the topic of money. If we avoid money altogether, we're literally avoiding one-seventh of the New Testament. Um, That's mind-blowing. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 um, direct verses on faith. Those are pretty big topics. But it devotes more than 2,000 verses to money. Why is that? 15% of everything that Jesus taught was on on money. Not just his parables, but everything that he taught. 15% of it was on money and possessions. More than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. And I have to think, because money somehow, and our connection or love of money and things, is connected to heaven and hell. I have to believe that. That the reason Jesus dealt with it so much is because there's something incredibly spiritual going on with regard to money and stuff and our heart and how we're connected to those that says if we're holding this, we can't fully grab all that God is or all that God would like to be or all that God has for us. That if we have this, in some sense, we're making a choice of what's going to be the the most supreme uh, or kind of the ultimate thing in our life what we're going to serve, who we're going to serve, whether it's God or this idol, mammon. And so I believe that this is incredibly important because I think money is tied to the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and the grace that comes there means that we don't have to put our identity or our salvation in money. It also means that there's a foolish choice in which if we're putting our identity or our salvation in money, we may miss the good thing that that Jesus has come to bring us, which is his free offer of salvation, which costs us everything, but returns to us more than we ever could have imagined. So I believe this is incredibly important. Martin Luther once said this, there are three conversion a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. Why talk about money? Because it's artificial to avoid the subject when so many of our problems, complexities of our life, and so much of the Bible surround the subject of money. In fact, Zacchaeus, when he gets saved, converted, the very next thing to align his life with this conversion is to readjust all of his finances and to go and make reparations to those that he had defrauded. That that was the natural outworking or connection of his salvation, his conversion, was this flow directly then into his business affairs and his money. There's this unbelievable connection between our heart, our relationship with God, our understanding of the gospel, and finances. So we're going to do this kind of in outline form. So if you like to take notes, maybe this will be a better sermon for you. Um, But I wanted to kind of do a comprehensive look this week, and then I wanted to do a deep dive next week into one of Jesus' parables. Um, This is comprehensive. Next week, kind of looking at one of Jesus' texts. So the the first thing here on why tithe, why include church or the kingdom in our finances, what does that mean, what even is it? The first thing is simply this, that the first portion of what we have or what we get belongs to the Lord. The first, per, uh, the first portion of what we have or what we get 
belongs to the Lord. Leviticus 27, you can look it up later. Leviticus 27, 30, after a whole list of dedicating things to the Lord, dedicating the stuff that you have, the flocks that you have, the lands that you acquire, of dedicating and setting aside for the Lord the first of all of these things, it kind of concludes this way. Leviticus 27, verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land. By the, word, uh, by the way, the, the word tithe just means tenth. It's just tenth. Um, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord, meaning it's set aside to him. It belongs to God. The first thing we got we to do here is get rid of this sense of guilt or duty that, man, somehow I got all this candy and God's really, <laughs> I mean, it's just not cool to ask for some of my candy. It's like when we, we take all the candy back um, on Halloween, our kids can go trick-or-treat, but then we take all the candy back. And the first year we did it, it was really uncool. Like, they just looked at us like, really? And so then we started buying it off of them. Because they think it's theirs. And so we had to compensate. If the things that you have, your um, money that you work hard for, the inheritance, the fact that you don't have school debt and so you have extra margin with your income, all of that stuff that accrued to you from generations or from your parents or from the education that you, ha- uh, that you have, all of this is not yours and God is trying to um, wrestle some of it from you. That's not what's going on here. What God is first and foremost trying to teach us is that it all belongs to him. It all comes from him. We didn't come out of the womb somehow um, having the propensity right then and there to make a lot of money, accrue a lot of money. Different people have poured into us and allowed us to do this and we're stewards of all of that. And God is saying, not only are you stewards of all that, but a tenth of it belongs to me. It's set aside to me. I consider it holy as having my name written on it, as having my stamp on it. It's not yours. It might come into your your hands. You might direct it, but it doesn't belong to you. It's not your Halloween candy. And so it says it belongs to the Lord. It's holy to him. And so it continues on. And it says the entire tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. Now, he must not pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. In other words, like, there's a defect with this lamb. Let me give that to God. Why? Because it's really hard to take the lamb with the defect and and walk it around in the field. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If I've got to give a tenth, let me give the tenth that doesn't matter or that has a problem with it because it'll just be so much more convenient. It'll work out so much better. And God is saying, if you go down that road, you're going to miss The point here, I'm very, very big and you show me honor. All that you have comes from me. The minute you start taking the unwanted things and saying that can go there, this is convenient, you're making me small, thereby dishonoring me, and before long, you're going to think that all of this really is yours. And so God says, not only... Do you not do that? But if you try and work out a substitute, I'm declaring right, right then and there that both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. They become mine. 
If you try and do that, then, then this good animal and the defect one, I'll take them both. I'll take them both. And we're going to learn real quickly that you follow me and that this dance, this rhythm, is always about honoring me and understanding the place of submission and faith and trust underneath me. But these things are mine. There's a phrase, first fruits. You can look it up, Exodus 23, 19. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 2. When you have entered the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord that uh, your God has given you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. In other words, bring in a basket kind of this bounty, this harvest, this first fruits. The, the first ones in, in kind of the summer that look good for picking. Uh, the ones that don't look like they're going to be sour. The apricots that actually look like they're going to be juicy. Like you want to, I mean the ones that are really good. Not only that, but the ones that are guaranteed. Um, what's the saying when, when you're a, a hunter? Isn't it a hunter's saying? Like a... Bird in the hand is worth something in the, I don't pretend to be a hunter. What, what's, then two in the bush? Yeah, bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. In other words, I got this one. Nobody can take it from me. It's mine. Like that's what those game shows are all built on, right? It's like you could walk away with 10,000 right now, or you could possibly be uh, a winner of a million, um, although the questions get so hard that we, we're not going to give you the million. Um, but you could, or you could walk away with the 10 grand, right? And, and we always go for the more rather than like the one in the hand. But there's something really valuable to what's in the hand. You have it. Nobody can take it from you. And when you live in a, in a world where there's, there's no um, big ditches for um, bringing water, irrigation, uh, there's no kind of... Um, sprayers that crop dust. There's not, there's not all these things that you can control to make sure that you have a crop at the end of the season. There are all these variables. Storms could come through. Droughts could come through. Pestilence could come through. The, the ones or the fruit, the beginning, those are the things that you have guaranteed to you. You can feed your family on these. You can dry these things. They can get you through the winter, all of that stuff. These things are incredibly valuable. And God is saying, I'll teach you faith and I'll teach you to honor me. You bring the first of all that fruit and you bring it to me. And then you trust that I'm going to take care of your crops. That in that obedience, in that faith, that, that I'm going to prove myself faithful and trustworthy. That's what I want you to do. And so you bring those things. The first fruits idea gives, I think, one of the best pictures that I think is out there. I, uh, I think when you look at fruit, it's really easy to understand what the tenth is all about. It's, it's the seeds for God. It's how the kingdom continues. It's how it, how it multiplies forward. It's we're all going to take a tenth and give it to the house or the tent of meeting, to the Levites, to the priests, to kind of the collective and then we're going to feed ourselves on the rest. I don't know anyone that eats the seeds. The seeds belong to God. They're holy. They're set apart for his purpose of continuing things into future generations. Resupplying and growing and multiplying. And this 10% belongs to God. Likewise, all that we have, 10% of it, belongs to God. The first fruits. The part that you're worried about. That's why... This idea of I'm going to start tithing when I pay off my debt never works because you're saying that I'm always going to put the tithe last. 
And when you always put the tithe last, and when you always, when you begin to build that habit of putting it last, you will continue to always put it last. The people that even though they have debt, make the discipline of tithing, begin to re-envision their money and their life and their priorities and how they spend. It changes everything. God says, put it first so that it'll align your heart. That's the first thing. It belongs to the Lord. The first portion belongs to the Lord. By the way, we, were, uh, we took a trip. I taught over at Western Seminary and, and spoke at a few churches and brought them greetings from Antioch. And I did that so that we could drive to some national parks and kind of come back with the girls. And we got um, grapes at a roadside stand. And Ashlyn says, my five-year-old, she bites into the grape and gets really upset. And she asked me, Dad, who put that seed in there? Because, you know, she's so used to genetically modified foods. And I'm like, honey, God put that seed in there. Well, that's a really dumb idea. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's, God's, it's God's plan. We alter it to suit our taste, and then we want all of it. I mean, there's genetically modified foods have a lot to do with our pocketbook when we don't tithe. Um, we can just put a GMO sticker on ourselves. I've modified it so that it's all for me. Think about that. Ashlyn also was wearing a cowboy hat because her sister has one. She was trying to beg me to buy it at this gift shop. And she said, I really need it. Um, All my other hats have grown out of my head. (laughs) You've outgrown your other hats? Yes. (laughs) They've all grown out of my head. Um, She's, she's adorable. All right, the second thing is this. Money is one of the ways we stay connected to God. If you've been at Antioch for any amount of time, um, you know that I like to use John 15 for a lot of things. Uh, I think it's just one of the hallmark passages that we have in Scripture. And John 15 is basically Jesus saying, I'm like a vine. And you're like branches. If you're connected to me, that's where all of the vital energy is going to come to drive your spiritual life. If you are not connected to me, then you have nothing that will give you life. And you will die. And things that are dead on the ground, what do we do with them? We gather them up and take them away and burn them, which is uh, partly why they burned witches at the stake, if you want to know. The Catholic Church took that very literally. Um, So people that were dead, guilty of heresy, would literally be gathered up like dead wood and burned. Um, I think Jesus is saying there's got to be some ingrafting going on. I really think what Jesus is saying is somehow there has to be overlap. You and I have to overlap significantly. And if we do, if we have shared priorities and shared values and a shared mission, then, then there's also the opportunity for a shared conversation and for co-laboring because we're, we're doing things together. And that ingrafting at that point then begins to be stronger. And as, as that begins to be stronger, you are more and more connected to me and will be more and more fully alive. I, I, I just, John 15, it's incredibly picturesque. And I think this idea of tithing in our money or stewardship is really important because it's one of the ways we stay connected to God. So turn to Matthew chapter 6, if you will. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole passage. There's one of the verses highlighted for you. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And Jesus is just trying to declare up front, this is the, this is the kingdom. These are the values of the kingdom. This is how you should frame and pattern your thinking. And in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 19, he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't, don't keep them in your garage. Don't rent places to house them for the winter. Don't continue to store up more and more things on earth where moth and rust destroy. So now more and more of your time is going to be to cleaning those things and to fixing those things and to doing upkeep on those things. And sooner or later, if we begin to look at your time and your priorities, more and more of your life is, is about this stuff. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Put your money there. Put your time there. Put your energy there. Polish up the things that are about the kingdom. Polish up ministry stuff. Get involved in your church's high school youth group. Don't just send your kids there. Get involved in, in people's lives. Don't just wish them well. Have the time and the energy and the ability to store up treasure in heaven so that the record of your life will bear witness to what you have done, what you have valued, how much um, energy and life and investment is into that, co-laboring with Jesus, talking to him about the needs you have as you're doing his work, and being able to enjoy the success and the fruit together when you do ministry as a way of life. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And then it says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're, we're tied to our treasure. We're tied to our money. We're tied to our time. We're tied to the things that we value the most. So if you just want to ball those things up, okay, our, our priorities, our time, our energy, our money, if we just ball those up, we're tethered to those things. So we can put that ball over here culturally in a consumer American kind of culture and we will be pulled by the tide like one of those little buoys you know, that the lifeguards have. With that ball that we're tethered to, we will be pulled this direction. We will follow it where our treasure is there our heart will be also. If we take that ball of priorities and, and things that we have that we're stewarding, the opportunities, the time, the money, if we take that and we put it in Christ, the vine, we will be tethered to the vine. We will be connected to the vine, the priorities of the vine, where Jesus would have us go, the things he would show us, the things he would put on our heart, the, the things, the opportunities, all of that, where that goes, we will follow, and our heart now is connected to the mission and the purpose of God. Our priorities come into alignment with kingdom priorities. It's just a simple decision. We take it and we put it there, and we go with it. If we don't decide to do that, the old Rush song, if you, if, if you do not make a choice, um, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Anyone ever listen to Rush, Fly By Night? If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Um, if, if we don't really think about it, um, TV, the mall, friends, opportunities will, will carry us in different directions. Um, 
we see and respond with the eyes. Do you know that? It's not new. That's how Eve was deceived. She looked at the fruit and saw what? Eve and Adam, by the way, looked at the fruit and saw what? It was pleasing to the eye and good to eat. We get pulled away from the things of God when we see stuff and go, it's pleasing to the eye. That would be good to have. I could justify that, just like Eve justified eating that fruit. And pretty soon, I do justify that. And then my heart follows. Why is money so important? Because our hearts are connected to it. Why did Jesus talk about it so much? Because he cares about our hearts. He came to redeem us, to convert us, which means he's operating on our hearts, which means he has to get in there and say, your time, your energy, your money needs to be connected with me. I have to be in that conversation. Otherwise, the tide will take you out. And, and the tide in this culture is a riptide. And I think we all know that. I don't think anyone would, would argue with that. So the second thing is that money is one of the best ways to stay connected with God. The end of this passage in Matthew chapter 6 says this. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's something interesting about that verse. It's, the first thing is, it's not neutral. It's an either or. But the, but the really interesting thing is that when you choose one of those things, you begin to despise the other because you see them as being antithetical to each other. This isn't just option A or option B. These are two opposing sides. And when you pick one, you begin to realize, wow, money and the love of money can ruin people. It can ruin their hearts. And it, and it takes them away from God. And that bothers me. My kids, that bothers me. My extended family, it bothers me. The people that I'm trying to minister to, I see the destruction. I'm against that. There's no place for that in the kingdom. Like, I, I despise what this is doing. How can I somehow persuade these people not to be carried away? Or if I go towards money. I hate religion. All it wants is your money. It uses people. We have to somehow get away from that, extricate ourselves from that, because we're free we're free in Christ. We have liberty. So go, take your money, spend it, be happy. Just don't hurt anybody. And it's okay. But this whole talk about a God that wants you, wants your stuff, all that, like God doesn't need that. God, do, God doesn't need my things. And besides, my joy makes him happy. And so I hate those people that speak for God and talk about all this money stuff and make it heavy and not fun. You know, I hate guilt. And churches shouldn't make people feel guilty. There's a lot I could say about that. There are churches that make you feel guilty, and I don't think it's healthy, because they, they don't talk enough about grace. But the part that makes you feel guilty is the truth that they're speaking. If it's not true, you don't feel guilty. You feel angry. Right? When was the last time someone told you an untruth and you actually felt guilty? When people tell you an untruth, if they abuse 
scripture and you're like, that's distorted. That's just not true. It's not there. You don't feel guilty. You feel guilty when you know, like, ouch, there's some of that that really is a part of me. It affects my life. I, I look a bit like that. So guilt's not a bad thing. Guilt's actually a part of how we're cut to the chase and we repent and we find forgiveness and then we're back in the good graces of God. God is quick to forgive. God loves to forgive. First John. So confess sins. But these two things are against each other. You can't serve God and serve money. They're opposed to each other. Last thing is simply this. Good stewardship. So the third thing is good stewardship brings spiritual blessing. This is the problem when we don't talk about money because televangelists have abused it. Is that one of the, the, one of the things that God always ties blessing to in scripture is that when we trust him with our first fruits, with a tenth at the beginning, with the best of what we have, when, we, when we're generous, that God prospers us somehow. There's a weird spiritual thing going on here where God is saying, test me because this is how I'm going I'm to bless you. And the more I bless you when you're giving, the, the more you're going to do what? The more you're going to give. It's how I affirm you and you're going to go deeper and further and deeper and further. Um, raise your hand. This is awkward, but raise your hand if you've ever had an incredible story of really fighting over giving away something and then to turn right around and there's a bigger blessing that was waiting for you. It's not manipulation. It's a part of scripture. Turn, turn with me to Malachi. So it's the last book before the New Testament. Malachi, last book before the New Testament, chapter three. So this is, this is the idea. The first portion belongs to the Lord. Money is one of the ways that we stay connected to God. And that leads into this idea that good stewardship, obedience, brings spiritual blessing. Obedience brings spiritual blessing. Anyone want to disagree with that formula? From the beginning of scripture to the end, obedience brings spiritual blessing. Why would we think that obedience with money somehow would not be a part of that formula? Obedience brings spiritual blessing. Proverbs 11.25, my favorite proverb, says this. Um, a generous man will prosper. A generous man or woman will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Jesus, Paul teaches us, had, had a saying in the book of Acts. Paul gives us this. He says, uh, Jesus said, it's better to give than receive. I actually believe that if Jesus said that, he meant it. That somehow in the posture of giving... There's a greater blessing than if you had just taken or received things. It's better to give than receive. But nothing says it more cleanly than Malachi. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. This is Malachi, and this is a prophetic book that really speaks to our culture. People that don't think there's a lot of dramatic things going on, and God really like pushes on them about a bunch of things like there's actually problems, and you think everything's just going on um, kind of laissez-faire. It's not. There's problems here, and I want to talk to you about them. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Because if I did change, I would destroy you. 
Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. You haven't been obedient. Now return to me. How do you return to me? By being obedient. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? In other words, how are we to be obedient? Ask that question. How are we to be obedient? And, and God says this, will a mere mortal rob God? In other words, will you treat me like I'm small and dishonor me? It's back to that original thing again. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? I mean, really, think about it. How are we, how are we like, I didn't see God. He didn't leave his lunch unattended for 10 minutes. And I went in, took a couple bites. Like, you know, he left his iPhone there. And so I, I posted something on Facebook on his account. Like, I mean, how am I robbing God? Right? And God answers. He says, here's how you're robbing me. In tithes and offerings. You're actually stealing from me. Because you're not bringing me the first fruits. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. If you obey, it brings blessing. If you disobey, uh, disobey it, it brings a curse. That's the formula all throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. You are under a curse. Why? Because you're being disobedient. You're robbing me of the tithes and the offerings. Verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, God doesn't need food, by the way. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Why? So that it's full. So that it's as it ought to be. So that there's resources for the Levites to interact with. So that the tent of meeting really is a center of the community. Okay, it's not that God needs a bite of an apple. Okay, bring it all the way in so that it's full and so it's robust. A, a, an anemic church budget reflects on the spiritual value we have for the things of God. There's no other way to say it. When I look at shortfalls, that's how I feel it. But I don't, I don't like saying it. Would you want to trade places with me and say that? By the way, we had a, we had a really good month last month and it was, we exceeded budget. So it's fun to talk about giving when we were generous and are generous. Um, so this isn't like judgment or condemnation, but it's a truth. If people are not tithing, they're not invested. If they're not invested in church, they're, they're probably not invested in the things of God. And if they're not invested in the things of God, they're not invested in God himself. So God says you bring it in so that the whole storeroom is full. Now here's the verse. Look at this. Um, test me. Have you, ever, have you ever been told don't test the Lord? Is, it, is that true or false? Just look at the text. Is it true or false? It's false. Don't ever let somebody tell you don't test the Lord. Because God himself repeatedly in scripture says test me. I'm waiting. I got the answer all wrapped up. And so you show me your faith, I'll show you my faithfulness. You show me your trust, I'll prove myself trustworthy. I'm ready to go here. It's waiting on your obedience. The blessing will follow. Test me. Amen. Says the Lord Almighty. 
and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. You want to know what I hate the most? Is that this is the verse that the televangelists abuse the most. Why do they got to, why do they got to steal the best parts of Scripture? Because if you had never heard this uh, verse, if nobody had ever abused this verse, what would this do to you? Is this a guilt verse or an inspirational, motivational verse? If, if you'd never kind of had things twisted and you go, really? How I treat my money and my tithe? This is, that's a test? And this is what you're saying, God? Like, that's motivational. When can I get started? How do I get going on this? The only, the only reason we have an aversion or, or like a, a cautious pullback to this verse is because we've heard it before. And it's been abused. And it's not the verse that's the problem. It's not the Lord God Almighty that's the problem. It's not what God will do in blessing those who are obedient that's the problem. It's that some people have abused their leadership for personal gain. And we have to separate that from what's true. So three objections that come up when we talk about tithing and money. So the first one is the first portion belongs to the Lord. Second thing is that this is... um, that this is how we stay connected to God. Money is one of the ways we stay connected to God. Third thing is good stewardship or just simply obedience brings spiritual blessing. I want blessing. In some ways, it's in my own hands. Here are the objections. Number one, tithing was part of the law, which is now abolished. Tithing was part of the law, which is now abolished. I could take you back to Adam and Eve and actually say that the the tree of um, good and evil was the part set aside to the Lord. It was the tenth of his garden that was not for us to genetically modify. Abraham was the the first one to give a tithe or a tenth in that formula, which predates the law. It predates the law. Um, We see in the book of Acts that people are taking up offerings, famine relief. They're taking up offerings to support the work of the ministry, the first church, which was actually a megachurch of thousands in Jerusalem right at the beginning of the book of Acts. And here's a verse that I'll put up, Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crop. Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops. Is that a law verse or a wisdom verse? It's a wisdom verse. It's not set aside by the abolishment of the law. What what we mean by the abolishment of the law is this is when people want to get really technical and say, well, Jesus died so the Mosaic law doesn't hold. That was a part of the Mosaic law. There are no Levites really anymore, the, the sacrificial system, so that went away. And it's like, no, the principle is here. The first portion of what you have is God's. It's not law. It's not moral obligation. It's not duty. It's a statement of fact. It's God's. 
Before the law, it's God's. During the law, it's God's. After the law, it's God's. The beauty is we get to give it now not as a way of trying to please God or earn righteousness. We get to give it out of a generous heart in a response to what God has done for us. And, and so that's why Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Because if you get the gospel, it will shape your finances. If you get the gospel, it will produce cheerfulness in you. And you will say, God, here you go. I know you'll take care of me. I want to be a part of what you're a part of. Use this, Lord, in your ministry, in your work, to, to multiply and grow the kingdom. Paul says, God loves a cheerful heart. This is not part of the law. And you wouldn't believe the people that bring this argument up. Two people do it. One is very, very devout Christians who are legalistic. Okay? And I actually think they, they tithe usually. They just don't like um, the formula that it's kind of put into a tenth. There's other people that want to say it went away because they don't want that, that their money somehow is wrapped up in, in the kingdom of God or all things discipleship or... Or that God is, is watching money. It's not part of the law. Why? I'm going to take my treasure and put it here. And I'm going to still feel okay about myself. Because I don't owe anyone anything. It's all my Halloween candy. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is is your heart. If you're finding ways to justify thinking that your money is yours... You fall under that New Testament injunction that where your treasure is, there's your heart also. So the first objection, it's not part of the law. I don't see any merit to that. I think it misses the point altogether. We're stewards of God's stuff. Second thing, shouldn't the church's money go to people, not pastors? Have you ever thought that? I have. thought it last night. Um... I struggle with it. So what is, is God's money supposed to go to? In the Old Testament, you had Levites. And it says this, The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in the land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share in your inheritance among the Israelites. And then in verse 21, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they do while serving at the tent of meeting. In other words, part of God's stuff is going to take care of the people that are devoted to God's work. I give to the Levites, this is God speaking, all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they do while serving at the tent of meeting. It goes on to say this, they will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. It's on the screen. That is why I said concerning them. They will have no inheritance among the Israelites. In other words, when things are functioning well, when people are acting in faith and people are obeying God and God is blessing, the tent of meeting is going to be full, fill my storehouses, and the people devoted to God's work are going to be taken care of and provided for. When things in, amongst God's people are not working well, we're not really seeing it as belonging to God. We're not filling God's storehouse. It begins to negatively impact how well people are taken care of that do God's work. There's something interesting. One of the, the verses that's always used against pastors taking money 
is that Paul, when he was in Corinth, was a tent maker. The phrase um, tent maker has come to, to have significance now in church language. Basically, he made tents because that was his trade. It's what he knew how to do. And he did it to provide money for himself while he was being a missionary. Okay? So now there's this Christian phrase, be a tent maker, which means you're not taking money from any kind of religious organization. You're working, getting your money, and then you're doing ministry. Okay? So the argument here is why shouldn't pastors be tent makers like Paul was? Paul did it in Corinth. Healthy church, unhealthy church. Healthy church, unhealthy church. Unhealthy church. Unhealthy church. Paul did it because he was down serving and nurturing and pouring uh, his energy into trying to breathe life into a fledgling spiritual community that was very, very worldly. Where people were sleeping with their father's wife. And the church didn't quite have that big of a, a problem with it. And Paul is patient. He's not judging them. He's, he's saying, I, this is who you are. And I'm working with you to try and disciple and grow you into spiritual maturity. And while we're doing that, I'm working as a tent maker. And it's slow going. Um, and it's taking a while. But this is what I'm doing. Not healthy. That's not the goal that we should be aspiring to as Christians to say, let's get to the position of unhealth where people that are doing the Lord's work don't get taken care of. Let's aspire. That's not what we're supposed to aspire to. This is what Paul says. Paul says this. I'll put it on the screen. 1 Timothy 5.18. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And it also says the worker deserves his wages. And what he's talking about here are people that serve the body of Christ. That, that put their time and their energy, devote it to serving the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, look, the spiritual principle here is the worker deserves his wages. What are they worth? What, is it, what do they require to be able to devote their time to being able to do the Lord's work? Paul will also go on and say that elders, what was the one function of an elder that wasn't character-based, that was actually uh, skills-based? was teaching. And Paul will go on to say those that teach, the elders of the church, deserve a double portion. Now, in a, in a culture where food is scarce, um, what does a double portion mean? If you're going around a table and you're scooping out some of Evan Hendricks's best onto a plate and you get to somebody and you stop and everyone's watching and you give a double portion, what does it mean? It means there's honor there. And we are going above and beyond to make sure you're taken care of. A healthy church does what? A healthy church takes care of their pastors. I don't like you taking care of me in weird ways because it, it makes me feel awkward. And I don't like feeling awkward. But I would love for you to take care of Kip and Linda and Carolyn and Terry who retired to this job. And Ben and others. Buy them gift cards anonymously. Put it in their mailbox at church. Take them out to dinner. Ask how they're doing. Don't, don't expect them to get you involved in the church 
serve them. Buy them so much food that there's leftovers. Don't say anything about it, just do it. Why? You honored them. They weren't thinking, geez, should I buy a drink because the drink cost $4. They told me they were paying for it. Is that awkward? Like, order them a drink so that they know that you care. The elders of this church that work 50 hours a week or more and then still devote time to doing small groups, to showing up for meetings, uh, to going above and beyond and doing it with cheerful hearts, honor them. Respect that. Get excited about that. Why? Because it, it has something to do with the things of God. And if it has something to do with the things of God, it has something to do with what? God. So shouldn't the church's money go to people, not pastors? It would sure make me feel more comfortable. I told Tamara that someday I, I hope I'm able to make a full salary outside the church so that I can just do this as a hobby. It would be fun for me. I'm nowhere close to it. Third thing, and it falls out of the, uh, the second one, the third objection, I'd rather give my money to nonprofit organizations focused on the poor. This is, this is my generation's heart. It's my heart. Nonprofits in, in the millennial generation are a huge thing. One, because there's so many of them. 90% of the nonprofits in the world today were created in the last 10 years, and they're all looking for money. Two, because of globalization in, in the internet, we're aware of all of the needs around the world almost simultaneously. And it affects us like it should. And so we want to invest there. It's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But here's what I would say. It's very different than bringing your tithe and offering to the house of the Lord. That was the first 10%. Do you know that the Bible has a category for the last 10%? Did you know that? First 10% is, is the tithe that belongs to the Lord, goes to the house, the tent of meeting, that you don't really get to, to spend. You're just returning it to the Lord. You don't get to make decisions on it. You're returning it to whom it belongs to. You're not spending the tithe. You're giving the tithe. The second 10% is this, Deuteronomy 24:19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. In other words, when you're harvesting, stuff's going to fall. And when it falls, don't go back and get the last 10%. Let the last 10% be for people less fortunate than you. Let the last 10% feed those who are in poverty or the orphans or the widows who are vulnerable, don't have anyone to take care of them, or the foreigner, the immigrant, the stranger that, that doesn't have the ability to make the same kind of money, the same opportunities that you do, the same privilege that you do, leave that last 10% there. Scripture actually would say this about your money, that the first 10% belongs to the Lord and that if you're a generous person, the last 10% belongs to your who? Your neighbor. And you live on the 80% in the middle. What we do when we give to nonprofits, and again, I'm, I like to do this. I have and continue to struggle with this. I, I like to take a big, robust tithe thing for like the year, put it on my credit card so I get miles, and then, and then I want to spend it on ministry. Here's where it goes. 
here's who I can give it to. Here's that organization that I'm supporting. And, and that's my tithe. And that's not, that's not a tithe. That's generosity. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, amazing thing. And it needs to happen. But the objection is, but there's so many hurting poor people in the world. Why would we give that tithe to the tent of meeting uh, if there's so many hurting poor people in the world? And here's the answer. Uh, the widow's might first passage. Remember this, Jesus looked up, he saw that the rich were putting their gifts into the temple treasury because they had excess. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people um, give their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Not only is she not giving it to the poor, but the poor woman herself is divesting herself of the resources she has to live on, and she's doing it to the church or to the, the, the house of God where the things of God happen, whatever, the tithe, where the offering's given. And Jesus doesn't look at it and say, wow, she should have kept it because she's poor. She should have given it to her neighbor because her neighbor's poor. There would have been a much better use of that. Jesus looks at it and says, it's a beautiful thing. She trusts God and she's not in love with her money. And it's a beautiful thing. Jesus also goes on right before he dies. And he's at the home of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And Mary takes out a pint of pure nard. Remember that? An expensive perfume jar. She pours it over Jesus' feet. He wipes his feet with... Uh, with her hair, and the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So just, just smell it. If you've ever been in a college dorm and they were burning patchouli, just think of that. Um, but one of his disciples, Judas, who was later to uh, betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So that's the millennial generation, right? Why are we giving money to the church? They have sound equipment, lights, they pay rent. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give money to the church um, instead of giving it to the poor? Really? Jesus says, leave her alone. That, what she did, was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The problem with me and, and millennials is we're tempted to think we can fix the world. We can't fix the world. Um, just because we can't fix it doesn't mean we can't change it. The whole reason we, we started the Justice Conference, and it's fun having Anne sitting here. Uh, I've, I've told a whole lot of people she's, she's the co-founder, even though I, I get called founder. Um, we started it because we believed that even though you can't fix the world, you can still change the world. It's really, really, really good to give your time and your energy to the poor, to fight injustice. In fact, that's, that's what the, the scriptures talk about over and over and over again, is that we're supposed to be leveraging our energy for the poor and the vulnerable, the orphan, the, the widow, the alien, that we're supposed to take care of them. And when that's not happen, happening, it's tantamount to walking away or falling away from God or disobeying God. In other words, obedience is giving to the poor. But Jesus says, even if you're doing that and doing it full tilt, you're never going to fully get rid of it. And if you get so obsessed with that that you lose sight of the spiritual side, 
there's another problem. Because there's a value to the spiritual side too. To singing worship songs. To praising God. To putting God back at the center. And, and Anne will be the first living in Africa to tell you that in, in eastern Congo right now, you can put a lot of money into building a school or a health clinic. And it very well, within a year, when some rebel army comes through, be burned to the ground. That the material things that money can buy in and of themselves are not enough. That reconciliation and forgiveness and, and working through deep spiritual relational issues where there's been tribal conflict and loss and pain and grief and the need to lament that the spiritual stuff ultimately is beneath and, and somehow affects the material stuff. And so the millennial generation has lost that. It's one of the reasons I like World Relief is because they, they focus on giving and doing things through the local church. That this part has to be there as well as this part for the poor. And I think when we don't care about our church here, we don't care about it in Congo or Peru or anywhere else. That we begin to take very lightly the corporate gathering together of the church which God has set up. The body of Christ. And when we begin to just take this lightly and think it's all about shooting fire at the flames, I think we're very short-sighted. And in the long run, we're not going to be able to do much spiritual or material good. So this argument, we shouldn't give it to churches. Sometimes that's true. I feel that way every time I hear of a, of a building fund. I was at a church this past week and they were putting the two loans they had for $8 million on the board and talking about how they're paying down those $8 million notes. Like I feel it too. Doesn't mean churches always spend money the way I would spend money. But at this church, we try our best to really keep things trim and to look outward and to focus on ministry and what we can do to try and impact the world for Christ. So this argument, why don't we give to nonprofits instead of the church? I would say scripture doesn't allow for you to spend your tithe. It's an act of faith when you offer it to the Lord. But there is another 10%. It's your last 10%. And God wants you to use that too. He wants you to use that to be generous and to help the poor to help the vulnerable, to fight for the oppressed. So in some sense, maybe our treasure and our money and our time and our energy and how our heart is tied to it, there's actually even a greater opportunity here than what we thought when we were doing the math or the calculus with 10%. Maybe we need to rethink that. So in conclusion, it's a stewardship issue, which is why there's a bunch of Dave Ramsey classes that are going to be offered this fall. I don't like just talking about the tithe part. I think there's wisdom, and the Bible certainly talks about the other 80%, how to save, how to not go in debt, how to try and be able to organize that for um, future health for you and your family. So there's Dave Ramsey classes that, that are comprehensive about money. If you want more information about that, I think there's something in your bulletin. Or you can find KIPP, but there's going to be several Dave Ramsey classes offered in the fall because stewardship is a part of this. Healthy giving patterns is a part of this. That, that we and our kids, my, my oldest daughter gets a, a, an allowance. It is absolutely necessary for her that every week she brings a tenth of that to give. We need to begin to be the examples we want to be for our children. We need to have healthy giving patterns. Have you ever really sat down on what a tithe would look like with your income or where you're at or all the different sources of your income? The third thing is generosity. 
There is, in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, just turn there, if you can turn quick. Acts chapter 2, there's this beautiful picture. It's what gets me excited about ministry. But at the end of Acts chapter 2, when, when the gospel is working its way out, they're preaching and people are repenting and being baptized. The, the outgrowth of that is this. Acts 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The things of God mattered. Church mattered because God mattered. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It goes on and we, we see Barnabas later too. But there were people selling lands. Barnabas came, sold land. Ananias and Sapphira sold land but then kind of like lied about it which I think they probably could have kept some if they just hadn't lied about it. And God kills them, saying, listen, we're not going to play games. You're not going to take the defective lamb and give it to the church. You're not going to manipulate this and make it about you. I'm bigger. I'm the one of honor. You do it with honest and sincere hearts. But what was really cool about this is people taking things and selling it and giving one-off gifts. I think it's so cool when I hear about building programs and people are like dropping a million dollars or $100,000. And I see that part of it and I get really excited. I'm like, man, how cool would that be? That people would take and do one-off gifts that literally, I mean, it's just take a truck, an Exxon truck full of gas and put it on the fire. Boom. When I was down in Whittier as a pastor, they used to go around uh, a bunch of uh, pyromaniac dads. One of them was a sheriff and they would collect all the Christmas trees of people in the church. They'd go out to the desert and they would set off explosives and, and, and light this bonfire literally like 40 feet high of dead Christmas trees. And the thing would, would just go crazy. They had a helicopter fly out one time because there was, you know, they were worried something was going on in the desert, you know, whatever. These guys were just obsessed with lighting things on fire. I, that's, that's what I yearn to see. I mean, do you understand what one-off gifts, uh, gifts do to just exploding a church with energy and opportunity? for youth ministry, for children's ministry, as we're looking to replace a youth pastor, as we're looking to hire another pastor going forward into the next year, with the money we wanted to give to church plants and our church plant network, with missionaries that we support, with people that, that are trying to help support those missionaries. Do you understand how much we can do with one-off gifts, big donations that, that aren't even in the budget? I... I I think there's something so incredibly cool that happens with generosity. And I'm so perplexed that the only way to get that seemingly is to have a building program. And I would just challenge us or you that if you're that person that if Antioch had a building program would be able to write that big check, that you do it anyways. And just explode some ministry in this church explode with generosity. Antioch, Kilns, the Maras. Let's not just be content with formulas, but let us trust that God, who asks us to test him, will 
actually prove himself faithful. Prove yourself with radical generosity that's based upon your understanding of the gospel rather than simply moral obligation. Prove yourself with radical generosity that's based upon your understanding of the gospel rather than moral obligation. Find creative ways to give with your time, your energy, your airline miles. Find ways to invest into the things and the place of God because the investment here says a lot about where your heart is with regard to God. Father, I pray for the money of this church. I pray for the people in this church. I pray for our hearts in this church. I pray for people that are going through struggles right now, intense grief or difficult situations, that somehow a part of this conversation in our hearts and you and your faithfulness and the gospel and how you always pursue us and forgive us would also speak to whatever other griefs are out there, that everything is spiritual. That we talk about money because it's a visible, tangible expression of of what's deeper and hidden. So it's not just about money. It's about hearts. It's about our relationship with you. It's about the things of God. Now as we respond now, I just pray that you continue to be close to us. Draw this church together that we may bring praise to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.